Greetings, 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 good people. This is Kat, and I'm here to introduce to you our newest series that I am calling One-on-One Live. This is a direct response to the COVID-19 pandemic, where each episode will feature interviews with people from all walks of life. I'm talking creatives, culture warriors, social justice warriors, and happen makers. Tune in to hear how they are coping in this new space, a space that I refer to as the after, and what they think the future holds. These episodes are recorded live, so if you want to see me and my guests in real time, head over to lowsoso.com for details. Otherwise, just subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and get new episodes as soon as they are available. Oh, and one more thing. If you enjoy what you hear, please, please consider making a donation using the information in the description box. Many of our guests have been adversely affected by the pandemic, so where you can, consider supporting their creative pursuits and causes. And that's it. That's all you need to know. Now, on to the episode. All right. Greetings, 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 good people, and welcome to another edition of Cat's Corner, the podcast. This is the one-on-one series, and I'm your host, Arissa Cat Okaday. So we have been plugging through and meeting some amazing people um, these last three weeks now. This is our third week doing it. I'm super excited. Um, last week was fantastic with uh, Mark Bamuti, Joseph, and Miriam Foy. And this week, we have two more culture warriors. Um, today, we're meeting with Will Snowden, who is a jury nerd. I think you described yourself as. <laughs> um, and, uh, and a social justice warrior in the space of making sure juries are, juries are diversified and also in making sure that as we, you know, try to navigate this world that there is equality in, this, in the sort of prison reform social justice system. So, well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Wow. Jury duty is my duty. Let's talk a little bit. Well, actually, no, let me, let me stay on my ritual. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Um, Every week is a little different. Um, You know, I think people will experience highs and lows depending on how we manage the current times. Um, But for me, today is good. have a lot of energy. I'm a morning person, so I'm really excited we're having this conversation at 10 o'clock in New Orleans time. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited to be here. I feel really well about this. Okay, I'm glad. Okay, so quarantine is in full effect. I think it's still happening in New Orleans. You guys haven't broken quarantine yet, right? Yeah, stay-at-home order is still in existence till May 15th. Okay, and how do you feel people are, you know, we're watching all over the country as people are protesting, being having, you know, having to stay home, all these concerns about the economy. We know that New Orleans in particular has had some serious issues, especially where, you know, the racial disparities are concerned. So how are people handling, as far as you can tell, based on the work you do and where you are, how do you think people are handling the continued uh, stay-at-home order? People are anxious to get back to their routines, to their, um, what what we would probably describe maybe normal lives. Um, At the same time, people know that this is, a threat to our lives. And so there's this balance between safety and kind of um, this idea of just opening the city back up. People are, are adapting. Um, I really think about the ways in which New Orleans celebrates life when a person passes away. Yeah. And one of those rituals is often a second line. It's, it's um, musical, it's, it's uh, based in community, and it's a celebration. Um, but due to the stay-at-home orders and the social distancing requirements, a lot of people in New Orleans have not been able to have that traditional home going. 
right. their loved ones. And that's, that's impacting people. And I'm thinking about ways in which the city, you know, when we're on the other side of this thing, hosting a very, very large citywide second line for all the people that have passed during this time that weren't able to be given that particular ritual. So that's one of the things that are on my mind. Um, I think people are doing the best they can and, and staying safe and being able to maintain earning a living as best as they can. Mm-hmm. But there's no familiarity with navigating this type of pandemic. So um, everybody's proceeding with caution. And in the work that you do, are you seeing any increases in places? Like I, you know, where I live, there has, you know, folks are trying to manage. I'm in Hyattsville, Maryland. Um, we just had an incident about six months ago where an unarmed black man was shot in the street. And, um, a lot of us are not happy with the way that that was handled. Um, and at the same time, with this recent video footage of Ahmad um, Arbery, we are seeing this resurgence of, you know, disdain for how police treat black people and all of these things. Um, but we haven't, I haven't seen any spikes. I think people are, there's been a lot of sort of worst case scenarios that I've seen and none of that has come to fruition in terms of crime or, you know, some of the things that we expect to happen during this time. Like, how is it on that side? Yeah, so kind of big picture, we have been trying to decarcerate. When I say decarcerate, I mean getting people out of jail and prisons due to the threat coronavirus presents to people that are in jail and in prisons. Uh, there's no such thing as social distancing in an incarcerated atmosphere. Um, and so we have to understand that those are people first. Yeah. And But for folks that were sentenced to a life sentence, I'm sorry, to a death sentence, nobody is in those buildings to die. And so the Vera Institute of Justice has been involved in trying to recommend policies to kind of figure out ways in which we can safely release people from jails and prisons. In the New Orleans jail, we've seen about a 25% reduction in our overall jail population. Uh, we have not seen an increase in crime. And one of the things that we've been able to prove is kind of blowing up this myth and idea that people charged with nonviolent offenses or low-level felonies, whatever they might be, don't need to be in jail in the first place. Right. Uh, we're, we're having some success in terms of uh, getting people out of jail and prison. Uh, we have not seen that increase in crime. Um, and so the idea that releasing folks from these institutions equates uh, violence or blood in the streets or just increasing crime has not been proven with what we've seen uh, with the number of people that have been able to come home for this period. And we know that, particularly with the work that you do, that a lot of these um, ideas around or these myths around, to use Ida B. Wells's, uh a term, these myths around why we have to incarcerate or why we have to use incarceration, particularly for nonviolent offenders, is, you know, in my opinion, as, you know, someone who's studied African-American history and culture, is largely sort of pulled from a racial discrimination, racial oppressive component. And um, I just wonder, you know, that we, that fight about decarcerating has been something that has been talked about across the nation. I know that in my city, in D.C. and in Maryland, there's been a lot of conversation like, just let these folks go. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wonder when you do this, especially folks who have been in situations where the jails are becoming these petri dishes for this virus, how do we make sure that folks aren't bringing the virus to their home folks? So do you know if there are any testing measures that have been put in place? any ways for people to safely, you know, quarantine? Like if you're going back into a situation where you've been released early, like how people are being told to manage? 
Yes, I think there's two things to consider there. Um, the idea of people coming home with coronavirus is, um, I, I think there's a threat regardless of who you are. If you are like in uh, a particular type of industry where you are being exposed, there's that threat of that person coming home right. with coronavirus. And it's appropriate to have that consideration for folks in jail and in prisons. And there's things that we can do to, to safeguard against that. Um, some jails and prisons are doing testing, and so there's that information that can be used. If you specifically want to release people with uh, negative test results, that could be one bucket. Right. Um, if there are people that, are, that qualify for release, whatever those kind of conditions are, but they test positive, you can figure out ways in which you can send them a place for a two-week quarantine that's not necessarily in the jail or the prison, right. and then that person can be safely released home. Right. Uh, one of the conversations we've been having in New Orleans, our, a huge industry is you know, tourism, and we have lots of hotels, and those rooms are, are vacant. And so there's been conversations around, and in action, of putting people that have home instability in those hotels, but also having conversations around, if there are people that can be safely released from the jail, but we have concern about ways in which they would be coming home because of a potential positive case of coronavirus, figuring out ways in which a hotel might be able to be used to be that kind of two-week uh, quarantine space so that they're no longer uh, kind of expanding the contagion within a jail or a prison right. and safely able to get better in a place that doesn't impact others. Right. Um, I, one of the questions that hasn't been answered for me when I've been sort of researching all this, when you decarcerate someone, that's it, right? They don't have to go back. Like if something, if because of coronavirus, we say you had three more years in your sentence, but, you know, we're going to, you know, release you because it's just safer for you not to be here. There's no chance. Like, does, is there like what happens in that? Can you explain that process a little bit? Sure. So it varies. Um, you know, every elected official has different types of authority that they can exercise to release people. One mechanism of releasing somebody from a prison um, is generally called a furlough. And typically, a person can be furloughed. It, it depends on if they have maybe two years left or one year left, or regardless of the number of years, the conditions of that furlough will essentially describe the terms in which they will be released. Okay. Uh, there's, I'm not aware of people that are being released that are expected to come back. The majority of the people that we are seeing released from the jail are charged with nonviolent offenses. Um, they have maybe two years or one year left in their sentence and they're now on parole. Um, and they essentially, a lot of them are being incarcerated in their homes, like home confinement. Mm -hmm. um, so I haven't been made aware of people that have been released with the expectation that they have to come back once we're kind of on the other side of this thing. Uh, but that is the, that's the typical practice that people will be furloughed or they'll be paroled early or their sentences will be commuted. And that is the discontinuation of their incarceration um, in an actual facility. Right. Although they will still have supervision by the Department of, of Corrections and Public Safety and Parole, uh, by having to report to that parole officer, having to check in, there will still be some conditions of supervision. It just won't be in an actual confinement of a prison. Gotcha. Um, and take us through sort of your personal journey. How did you come into this work and why... I appreciate you for being this type of advocate because we need it, but I'm, I'm always interested when people choose this kind of work, like what brought them into it. Hmm. 
I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is uh, for a long time has been called the Selma of the North. Mm. This is a very segregated city. And growing up, um, I grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee. And I was in the ninth grade, I was running cross country practice. And we had that particular day, the practice had gone into a more affluent white neighborhood, a different, completely different suburb than the one that I lived in. And I was not the fastest person on the team. Uh, that particular day, I was the slowest person on the team, and I was about a mile, probably about a mile behind the rest of the of the, of the team that was running that day. And I remember running in this uh, suburb called Brookfield, and a police officer pulls up and he stops me. He rings the siren kind of one time and rolls down his window, and he asks me, why are you running so fast? And I thought to myself, well, I'm actually not running that fast because the rest of the team <laughs> is up there. Right. Uh, but I kind of caught my breath. I looked at my shirt, which is the universe, you know, it, right. it, it's the cross-country shirt. It's got the two C's on it with the arrows through it. Right. I got these ridiculously short shorts on that no self-respecting person would wear unless you're running cross-country practice. Right. I look at my outfit as my answer, and I say I'm running cross-country practice. And he goes, likely story. And he asks more of my name and my, my date of birth, and I give it to him. And he runs it, nothing pops up, and he, and he takes off. And you know, I run back to the high school, I tell my coach, my coach is upset. I tell my parents, my parents are upset. And I come from a blended background. My dad is black, my mom is white. Mm-hmm. And when I tell both of my parents, you know, we hop in the minivan with my oldest sister, Liz, and we head to the Brookfield Police Station because my parents weren't going to allow their son to be mistreated and profiled right. by the police in this particular way. And my dad is, uh, you know, more brown-skinned, darker-complected black man. My mom's a white woman. My sister it has a similar complexion to me. And the four of us walk into this police station, and the desk sergeant it, it looks at us, and my dad starts yelling at the desk sergeant. My mom starts, starts yelling at the desk sergeant. And the desk sergeant says, sir, we'll be with you in a second. Ma'am, how can we help you? Not knowing that we were a family unit. Right. And then, it kind of, then he kind of realized that we were all together and that they were raising the concern about the same thing. So then they bring a lieutenant out and the lieutenant says, well, we want to ask your son some questions. And then my parents figure out which one of them is the best parent to go back with me to be questioned. And my mom decides to go back with me. And my mom is, uh, she was she a teacher. She was a nun. She is, uh, has a very stern voice. Like she can check you in ways I'm still learning how to do to this day. Right. right. I still try to use her white privilege as well. Yeah. And so we go back there. The lieutenant's asking me questions and he asks me, well, what direction were you running? And I tell him I'm running, I was running towards West and everyone in that area of Milwaukee and those suburbs, uh, knows that there's two high schools in Wauwatosa. No one says Wauwatosa because it's a mouthful. Right. So instead of saying Wauwatosa West, you just say West, mm-hmm. referring to that high school. If you go to Wauwatosa East, you just say East, referring to that high school. So when I told him I was running towards West, he questioned me uh, you know, to confirm that that was my answer. And he says, well, you said that you were stopped on this particular street, and that street only runs north and south. So the fact that you're saying you were running West doesn't make sense. Clearly trying to say that I'm making up a story. My mom corrects him. She says, you know what he's talking about, running towards West High School. Then the lieutenant says, well, we have an officer. We have, sorry, we have a witness that saw the cop not stop and talk to your son. Wow. 
And so when the officer said that, I got upset because he was calling me a liar. Right. And my mom was on it immediately. She goes, well, well, how did you canvas for that? Did you walk around knocking on doors right. saying, hey, right. did you see this cop not stop and talk to this young black kid? Right. And secondly, when did you canvas for that? Because we just got here 15 minutes ago. Right. When did you have time? She was able to call the officer out immediately. And my mom demanded an apology. The tenant said no. My mom said, well, if you don't give us an apology, you'll see this story in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in, you know, by Friday. And my mom had a friend that worked at our church that worked at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And that was like a, it wasn't a threat, it was a promise. Right. Um, eventually, the lieutenant issues an apology and we leave. And I always reflect upon that story about how I was mistreated, how I was profiled, uh, how I was seen as a threat or seen as not belonging in a particular neighborhood. And the police officers were questioning me to, you know, exercise authority, but also to potentially try to arrest me for something that they thought I did. And seeing my parents' response to how they handled and kind of protected me was always inspirational for me to, A, recognize the privilege that I have being raised by wonderful parents and being taught how to call out injustices to know that people that look like me are going to be treated in a very unfair and different way. Mm-hmm. And so getting into working in the criminal legal system, you know, the, disparity, the racial disparities are obvious, they're offensive, and they need to change. And I always reflect upon that experience of learning that lesson from my parents and how to stand up for others when you see injustices as one of the guiding kind of lights and why I continue to do this work to this day. Mm. I think it's, it's beautifully ironic that that happened to you um, and there was someone there to protect you. And when I think about um, Ahmaud Aubrey, I, I just, it, like it, it, it actually, like I feel emotional right now in this moment, just thinking about that because um, I didn't know about it. I saw the video by accident. I didn't even know what I was looking at. I just Mm -hmm. got on Twitter and the video was there. So I clicked on it and I didn't expect it to end the way it did. And then to find out that um, this case, this happened in February and we're just now actually hearing about it. You know, I wonder you go in and you do this work, you're inspired by this childhood experience that changes you forever. I'm reminded by County Cullen and his poem about Baltimore. And um, I wonder... My middle name is Cullen. What'd you say? My middle name is Cullen. That, that's my mom's maiden name. I love it. I love it. The synchronicity <laughs> is amazing. Um, I'm, oh my God, I'm having a moment. Um, <laughs> but I wonder, how do you... And what keeps you going? And how do you... When you do get into those bumps, when you do have those moments where you're like, this is some bullshit, like why the hell are we here? How do you, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, I've been experiencing that this week. So there's two parts I wanted to share. So absolutely, when I was running the 2.23 mile run yesterday in, in honor of Ma, I was thinking about this experience that I just shared with you um, and reflecting on how that interaction I was lucky and fortunate to to not have um, that interaction be a deadly one. And then I think about how I have a kind of a core group of bad friends that we have been very motivating and promoting of each other to stay physically active, to maintain our mental health, and to have those kind of routines and rituals that help us sustain through difficult times. And so there's that piece of trying to have that core group of support from friends of mine that help keep me going. Uh, on a personal level, and then on a work level, 
you know, this particular week, there's been a lot of um, bills that have been introduced in the Louisiana state legislature as it relates to the criminal legal system that are just taking us back. Yeah. Right? Um, and it's really concerning on how some state legislators are trying to sneak these bills in when really we should not be trying to do, not, we shouldn't be trying to rush these bills. Right. But since not everybody can come and be at the Capitol, it's kind of not, not done, being done in secrecy, but it's not being done in full transparency like a normal mm-hmm. legislative session uh, would be. And I get frustrated, you know, I, to, I, I don't have to, but I watch these videos, these hearings, these testimonies um, about these bills happening and just seeing the ways in which certain legislators are trying to erode the reform and the progress that we've been making in the criminal legal system. And I certainly get upset, but upset isn't a, for me, isn't a productive emotion. Right. right? Um, and I think I learned that from my dad. There's just been times where I've seen my mom get angry about something. My dad's like, well, how do we solve the problem? Right. Uh, and I think I, I take that approach as well in thinking about when, when there's just kind of this nonsense happening in our criminal legal system on a continuous basis, how do I think differently to be able to act differently, to be able to actually have something change is this thought process that I constantly have to be thinking of. And also learning that relationships in Louisiana and the way relationships in New Orleans, that's what drives change, not the merits of an issue. And right. so thinking about how do we build those relationships that can really influence and control some of the bullshit that we're seeing and doing so in a way from a space of examination and accountability. Right. And when you think, when I think about, so the juror project for me is a great example of, of that, you know, your goal with that um, organization is to really kind of push so that the jury looks diverse, that it has diversity. Can you talk us through a little bit about why you started it? And how does one go about pushing for diverse juries? Because that's yeah. a huge undertaking. So I came to Louisiana because it's the prison capital of the world. Uh, simply put, they're locking up too many black people. Right. And I was a public defender for five years at the Orleans Public Defender's Office. And whenever I would go to trial or I would see colleagues go to trial, I saw the same thing happening. That There were these methods and systems in place that were removing diversity from the jury not just diversity of race, but also diversity of ideology, diversity of experience, diversity of background. And when we look at the research, particularly around juries, but also around group decision-making, we know that when you have more diversity in a group, you have a more objective outcome. And so we think about what that looks like in a jury. When you have more, a more diverse jury, you actually have more fairness in the criminal legal system. And so I really embodied my role as a public defender to fight for that person that I had the privilege of representing. Mm-hmm. But seeing the way that the system, criminal legal system was designed to really have me fight with one arm behind my back was frustrating. Right. And so I began to think, what are the things I can do outside of the courtroom that would help my fight in the courtroom, right? And so began to have these conversations at neighborhood associations, at barbershops, uh, at churches about jury duty. And hearing people's responses when I say, you know, you know, if I say jury duty, what comes to mind? And people would say things like waste of time, uh, I never get picked, or I always try to get out of it, or when I get the summons, I call my lawyer friend to you know, get me excused. Mm-hmm. And I took those types of sentiments and I said, well, damn, wouldn't it be great if people received a jury summons and their reactions were, I'm, I'm excited to participate, I'm looking forward to ensure somebody gets a fair trial, 
right. and I'm going to take advantage of this access to power that the, that the government has given me in this particular scenario. And really seeing the jury box as an arena for reforming the criminal legal system, mm-hmm. where it shows that you don't have to be a lawyer, you don't have to be a judge, you don't have to be a governor to bring about the fairness in the criminal legal system that we absolutely deserve. But you could be a barber, you could be a DJ, you could be a teacher, you could be a plumber, you could be unemployed. And when you get that call, you respond to it, and now you're changing a system that you maybe didn't directly interact with, but ultimately is playing a role in the overall public safety of the communities and neighborhoods that we live in. And so I just got frustrated with seeing the same practices happening over and over again that was really robbing the system of the diversity in that jury, particularly the person that I was representing, that I decided to do something about it. And we think about the three main ways in which our juries are having the diversity removed. The first is the, the way that we are summoning jurors. Right. Most jurisdictions use voter registration and DMV records, but not everybody's registered to vote and not everybody owns a car. Right. The second is the way that we conduct our voir dire, and voir dire is a term for jury selection, so that there's actually practices that some lawyers deploy that intentionally is trying to remove certain people from the jury, and that can actually look like juror discrimination. And then the third is the community. It's our mindset. It, when we get that actual summons, if we're trying to get out of jury duty, we are actually contributing to the lack of diversity in our juries. And I wanted to flip all of that on its head. So right. the jury project stands for two main things. First, to increase the diversity of our juries. And second, to improve people's perspective of jury duty in order to bring about a more fair criminal legal system. Okay. So I think for some people... Like, I've always wanted to sit on the jury. Like, I low-key was like, oh, this would be dope if I could sit there and, like, you know, be part of something like this. And the way the system works, you know, you get called in and it's like this corralling of people and it's, you sit and you sit and it feels like a time suck. And then they, you know, at least in Maryland, they're like, you get $35 for the day. And I'm a professor, so, you know, I can actually take leave for jury duty and not lose any time for doing that. But I imagine sometimes for someone who does not have that option, how sitting all day um, in a space where you're limited in terms of what you can do and then being told that, you can, you, that you're going to get $35, that might feel like you're asking a lot of me. Um, have you thought about, are there ways that we might like, are there ways that we might think about how we compensate people for jury duty or maybe on the other side, if it's jury duty, you shouldn't lose time from work. You should, you know, you should absolutely get paid for that. Yeah. So jury duty is certainly designed to be easy for some folks to participate in and not easy for others. Right. That's another example of kind of uh, who has access to that power. I think things that could be done is have the local chamber of commerce or have the local uh, business alliance of whatever city folks might be in to promote this policy that when an employee gets called for jury duty, that's not sick time, that's not vacation time, that's authorized absence, and that they will continue to pay that person their salary or their, or their earnings for that particular day. Right. Then also, so that's like on the employer side. And then on the government side, uh, in the courthouse, we need to figure out a new way to uh, engage people in serving on our juries. We could have something that some jurisdictions uh, deploy. I think Massachusetts has, it's called a one day, one trial system. So essentially you show up one day 
And if you get called for jury duty, if you get selected, then you sit on the jury for the duration of that trial. And when that trial is done, you go home. If you show up for that one day and you don't get called, you're done for two years. Mm -hmm. so, you, so you don't have to keep on coming for two weeks just to see if you're going to be selected. Right, right. What happens is people get called to the courthouse. They sit in a jury um, waiting room with cold coffee and crappy Wi-Fi. They're not getting paid. They're trying to figure out how, who's going to pick up the kids because you're stuck here in the courthouse. There's so many things that folks have to manage and sacrifice uh, to be able to perform in the civic duty. Right. And it's not fair. And it's, it's 2020. We can incorporate technology into this process to effectively make sure people have the access to this opportunity, but also not be as burdensome as it currently is. Right. And so moving into that space about, you know, just thinking through technology institutions, you're also, because you have lots of hats, um, the director um, for New Orleans at, at the Vera Institute, um, which is, you know, pushing for social equality and the justice system and things of that nature. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do there? Because it feels like, my goodness, when do you have time? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're not doing something, you're doing nothing. Right. So, <laughs> I, I left the public defender's office um, after being this kind of participant observer in the New Orleans criminal legal system, being frustrated. I got burned out and this opportunity presented itself at Vera to be the director of the New Orleans office. So the Vera Institute of Justice is a not national nonprofit that focuses on reforming the criminal legal system. Uh, we are kind of a policy shop. We use data to identify problems and then pilot solutions based on best practices. The New Orleans office, um, Vera first came to New Orleans in 2006, mm -hmm. where we were invited by a council member after Hurricane Katrina to come and help reform the criminal legal system and with the main focus of reducing the jail population. Uh, so before Hurricane Katrina, the average monthly jail population was around 6,500 people. And now the average monthly jail population is around 1,000. Wow. So 6,500 monthly average before Katrina, around 1,000 monthly average now. Wow. A huge reduction, a huge testament that this size of the city doesn't need that size of the jail. And the Vera Institute of Justice was part of that effort to bring that population down in collaboration with community, in collaboration with interested government partners and advocates, uh, very much being part of that collaborative process. So in addition to jail population reduction work, um, we also are advancing bail reform. We're trying to end money bail because money bail doesn't keep us safe. We're also trying to end unnecessary fines and fees in the criminal legal system. And we call money bail and fines and fees, we put those together and we call that money injustice. Mm -hmm. And we believe that money shouldn't play a role in, in our criminal legal system. And the way that it is currently operating, it's an extraction of wealth from poor black and brown folks here in, in New Orleans, and we're trying to end that. Uh, we're also involved in what's called reshaping prosecution. There's an election in November here in New Orleans for a district attorney, and we are trying to educate New Orleanians what a district attorney does, but also what types of best practices we should expect from a 21st century prosecutor. Um, and then we're also just advancing uh, work to change the way the city is going to respond to its folks with mental illness. Mm -hmm. Right now, there's a plan to build a jail and to put people with mental illness in that jail. 
and we believe people with mental illness belong in a hospital, not a jail. So we're advancing some of that work as well. So that's what we do in New Orleans, but nationally, Vera is involved in almost every kind of uh, entry point of the criminal legal system to really bring about this sentiment of humanity and trust and fairness, um, not only on behalf of the people that are coming through this legal system, but also on behalf of survivors of crime. Uh, we advance and promote projects of providing uh, secondary, post-secondary education in our prisons, of providing representation to people that are facing uh, deportation proceedings, of advocating and trying to end uh, girls' incarceration. Uh, so we think about all the problems that the criminal legal system has. We try to bring about a actual system to end that injustice. Right. So when we think through... Um What's up, Buddha? Sorry. No, no problem. <laughs> what are my frat brothers is doing? <laughs> um, so when we when we think so, it's six. I'm blown. Sixty five hundred to a thousand is huge. That's a huge, 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 huge um, decrease. Is there some? Hmm, I'm trying to figure out how to frame this question because one of the things that the pandemic has caused a great deal of death. Um, a, you know, a lot of people have died, but in slowing down the systems, I feel like it's giving us an opportunity to pivot in a real way. And so I wonder, was that decrease as a result of Katrina out of necessity or out of some real understanding of the humanity that is deprived of people when they are forced into these systems? There was exposure of policies that was leading to the mass incarceration problem of New Orleans that once exposed, people were comfortable with. And this idea that a lot of these policies don't survive in the sunlight. Um, so one of those policies was local jail, the local jail housing state inmates right. uh, from Department of Corrections. And a jail is very different from a prison. A jail is a facility that is designed to hold people uh, while they are awaiting trial, well, before they have actually been adjudicated guilty or not guilty. A prison is where somebody goes to serve time for a particular crime that they may have been committed of. And to mix those populations is unnecessary and it's not consistent with design. With a prison, you actually want to be investing resources into that person to support their ability to reintegrate back into our communities if and when that day comes by providing classes, by providing seminars they can attend to get certificates. That type of resources aren't provided in the jail. So to have state inmates in the local jail is a problem. And I'd say about half of the population of that 6,500 number were state DOC inmates. And that was a money grab because the state would be paying the local parish sheriff money to house those, uh, those inmates that were, those people that were state, uh, under, under state sentences uh, in the local jails, which was contributing to the problem. But also just understanding that we were just sending way too many people to jail unnecessarily and that we could actually be advancing policies that promote public safety while simultaneously reducing the jail population. Gotcha. And um, so we recently saw in New York uh, a beautiful statistic that came out that showed that out of the 40 people arrested for not adhering to social distancing orders, 35 were black. And mm -hmm. we're, <laughs> ooh, I get so tired. I get so tired. I can only imagine what it's like for you. Um, so in the midst of a pandemic, we're still seeing some of these behaviors continue. And I'm wondering, have you seen any upsides in terms of what this pandemic has allowed for your work to do? 
Yeah, we've been able, uh, uh, kind of mentioned this earlier, but we've been able to challenge and expose some assumptions that we've blindly been following. So the 25%, let me back up. So at the end of February, we had around 1,100 people in the New Orleans jail. Uh, yesterday, the jail population was 835. I think the lowest we might have gotten could have been around 750. And a lot of that reduction was due to um, people charged with nonviolent offenses being released from the jail. Right. And that invalidates an assumption that they needed to be there in the first place. Like if we were comfortable releasing them right now because of the threat coronavirus poses to the people in the jail, and they don't, those people don't actually pose a threat to public safety, then why do they need to be there in the first place? And I also want to expand on that. Just because you are charged with a violent offense doesn't mean you pose a threat to public safety. Mm-hmm. And talking about violent crime is a sensitive topic, right? Mm-hmm. Violent crime uh, has a different connotation of pain, of trauma, of violating some uh, contract or understanding of public safety. But we're still talking about this pretrial phase. And so really what we should be using this moment for is recognizing that we were able to safely release people from the jail, those people that were charged with nonviolent offenses, and then also lead into the people that are charged with violent offenses to see if there are mechanisms that we can put in place to safely release those folks um, so that they aren't unnecessarily in the jail while this pandemic is going on. But even when we're on the other side of this thing, normalizing the practice that people charged with nonviolent offenses don't need to be in the jail in the first place. Normalizing a practice of district attorneys meeting a burden of proof, demonstrating that even the people charged with violent offenses uh, pose a threat to public safety that cannot be mitigated by any means. But then also rewinding, not rewinding, but going back a little bit before those folks are even brought to the jail, having conversations about the policy of the New Orleans Police Department by saying, instead of bringing that person to jail, you can issue them a ticket, you can issue them a summons, and we're not talking about people not being held accountable. Right. We're just talking about when they can, where they should be held before they are held accountable. Because people can still fight their cases from the street, be found guilty of the crime, and then be punished for that crime. And we don't need to be advancing and promoting that punishment on the front end when we have unnecessary pretrial incarceration. Right. And you talk about normalizing. Um, you know, I think it's safe to say, and people have been saying that, that we're not going to be able to go back to the, the before. and the after, things have to be different. What do you think it takes to normalize this? I mean, we, you said, you, you know, pan, the pandemic has been able to show that nonviolent offenders shouldn't have been in, incarcerated in the first place. That's just, it's, just, it's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also see us at the same time that this is happening, that people are dying that we are trying to make sure that the population survives. We definitely still see this push for capitalistic gains, capitalistic um, understanding. So wanting people to go back out. And so when you think about the fact that a lot of these jails, these incarceration pods are basically money grabs, what happens when the money's not there? Like, do you think that we will, will be able to like bankrupt these systems so that they don't come back? Or do you, do you fear that at some point, well, we are able to kind of maybe two years from now go back to some semblance of being able to be out if there'll be this push to repopulate those, those places because there's still money involved. I think we need to use this moment as an opportunity to redefine what equity means in our criminal legal system mm-hmm. and doing so in a way um, that really anchors the point that you were just talking about with capitalism and with money and that 
if we were to take a business perspective or business analysis of our criminal legal system and do a simple calculation of input and output, we are inputting X amount of dollars and we're getting out how much public safety or how much uh, justice or how much fairness. And this notion of incarceration promoting public safety is a myth. And it's a myth that we have blindly followed for decades because we have only been taught that physical confinement is the only way to keep somebody from harming another individual. Right. And too often we're only focused on the problem that's right in front of us and not the problem that's creating the problem in front of us. So when we're talking about what we need to be doing differently, if we're looking at this business analysis, if we're pouring all this money into incarceration, thinking that it's going to keep us safe, we have the data to demonstrate that simply doesn't work. Heck, we look at Louisiana being the prison capital of the world, and if incarceration kept us safe, we would be the safest place in the world, but we're not, which proves that incarceration does not, in fact, promote public safety. And so thinking about advancing policies that uh, really understand what's contributing to people coming to the criminal legal system in the first place, to really understand that poverty is a key contributor to crime, and if we want to focus on the problem that is creating the problem, then addressing ways in which we can reduce the number of people that are living in poverty, because when we lower that population, we will also be lowering the population of people that are actually committing crime, which will then lower the population of people that are coming to our jails in the first place. And to normalize that, I think there is a huge value that the Vera Institute of Justice can play in terms of examination and accountability. Let's bring the data. Let's look at how uh, reduction in our jail population actually did not increase crime and look at ways in which we could be holding people accountable, look at ways we can be advancing practices like restorative justice, looking at ways where we could be treating people with mental illness with the health system and not the criminal legal system to create this new normal uh, that actually is founded in policies that work for the betterment of the community. And I'm assuming that part of that normalization requires for voters to understand the data as well. Um, and they're choosing, you know, the, the district attorneys or the sheriffs or whoever, that they understand that these are the types of things we need to be making sure these folks adhere to. And um, I'm wondering, when you go out into the community and you are trying to engage folks from that perspective, you talked earlier about how part of your mission is to, with the November election coming up, and it's big on so many levels, um, in, in making sure that voters understand um, there is a very specific way in which black people have been treated by these systems that I think makes us a little wary of change. And I wonder how, if you've experienced that in your work and how you get around that, like how do you help folks, you know, engage and, and really want to help change the system that has often been very threatening to them? Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's hitting the nail on the head. Uh, we think about, Sometimes people sometimes people's just non-excitement around voting mm-hmm. or disbelief that their vote doesn't matter. Right. Or the idea that it doesn't, you know, what it doesn't matter who's in office, I'm still going to be treated the same. And I feel it's part of my role to connect dots for folks, right? You remember the documentary When They See Us? Yep. People were very frustrated with that case, with those innocent, those innocent young uh, men being convicted for crimes they did not commit. And we also be frustrated with that case. A lot of things wrong with that case. What I point out is that look at that frustration you have 
and understand that it was a jury that convicted those innocent young men. Right. And understand that if we had more diversity in our jury, maybe we could have less wrongful convictions and we would have more fairness. Or in this current moment, when a lot of people are rightfully frustrated with the prosecutors in Georgia that did not bring charges against the people that killed Ahmad, look at that frustration and connect it to the dots to when we actually have to vote a district attorney in office. It, we can't, you know, we can't just blindly forget all these problems that we experience throughout the year when we come to the ballot box. Right. Because too often we will get persuaded and enamored by this flowery language that politicians are so, so good at, at sharing when it's time for election, but they become a different person when they're in office. Right. And so accountability is not only about transparency, but it's also about remembering and giving praise where praise is due, but also giving criticism and constructive feedback when that is due as well. And the way that our government is set up, the way we have access to a lot of that accountability is through the ballot box. And so it's important to be able to remind folks through transparency of data, through analysis of practices on what we actually should be expecting from people in positions like a prosecutor to advance public safety with the community. You're amazing, Will Snowden. I do appreciate the work that you do. I really, really do. Um, And as we come to a close, I wonder, um, you know, how the world is so different now. Like, what are the things, and and I'm not going to lie, there's a part of me that's excited about what we can potentially change and do and how we can actually create. Like, I think for the first time in ever, um, we have the ability to change systems. Like, what is a work week now will change? You know, what constitutes a workplace will change as a result of this? And so I'm wondering for you, what are, what is like, is there a particular thing or just something tangible for you that you're like, yo, if I can get this to shift, it'll be a win. Mm. So I always, a phrase that I frequently say is, um, the way we see each other is the way we treat each other. Right. And I think from a perspective of how we engage each other in our workplace, in the grocery store, at home, in the neighborhood. Um, I think if we could see each other differently as uh, people first, yes. that, 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 would change, that would change so many, um, so many policies, so many things, so many uh, allocation of resources. Mm-hmm. And uh, a colleague of ours at an organization called Voice of the Experience, um, his name is Bruce, shared this analogy, he said, well, you know, if a plane crashed and there were survivors and the ambulance is running in, the EMTs are running in, they're going to administer aid because there are people that, whose health is in danger. Right. They're not going to conduct background checks first to see if those people are worthy of medical care. Right. And he shared that in conversation with getting health care or getting protective equipment and getting released to people in our prisons around coronavirus. And I think if we can change the way that we see each other, that fundamentally will change a lot of the policies that are impacting um, everybody in this, in this community. I love it. Okay, so this is the part where I ask if there are questions. Um, okay, maybe not. Okay, I thought there was, there was an additional question. Um, well, a little birdie told me that um, you are a cellist. 
and that, <laughs> and that you do these amazing um you know monday monday sessions where you post your 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 music and I would love for you to tell us a little bit about that part of yourself, um, how you got into cello, mm -hmm. and what made you start wanting to share your music. Like, were you were you part of an orchestra? Did you just do this for yourself? Like, I mean, you do yeah. a lot of things. So I don't know. Um. So I actually started playing the violin at a very young age. Mm -hmm. I'd guess maybe five or six. I don't remember. I'd have to ask my mom. Um, but I have three amazing sisters, Liz, Christina, and Mary, and they all play uh, instruments as well. Yeah. So my mom, I think low-key, wanted to have her own little personal quartet. <laughs> she could be working in the kitchen, and we could be playing the background music. Right. <laughs> I remember playing for like her friend's weddings and all this. Um, my mom, you know, really was... Uh, encouraging of us to pursue music and I, I started off on the violin it was too high and squeaky for me so I ultimately transitioned to the cello and I don't remember the exact age but maybe it was like seven or eight and since then you know, I've been playing in orchestras since I could remember you know I played orchestra in middle school I was in the Milwaukee Music Makers I was in the Milwaukee Youth Symphony Orchestra I was in both orchestras of my uh, high school, I was in the Wisconsin State Honor Orchestra, I was in the University of Minnesota Campus Orchestra, I then moved to New York and I joined a band called The Scheme. Uh, we played maybe about three albums on iTunes, I moved to New Orleans, and now I play in a band called Junko Beat. So for me, music has always been uh, an outlet for me. Mm -hmm. And I do these, uh, I, I call them Music Mondays. And uh, I also do, well, I don't call it music, I guess I call it music Mondays. Um, I got that idea from uh, a friend of mine who is a yoga instructor. She owns Magnolia Yoga Studio. Her name is Ajax, the only woman Black-owned studio in New Orleans. Wow. And she does music Mondays for yoga, and it's one of my favorite sessions to attend. And so I took that kind of idea, music Mondays, and then Yo-Yo Ma, who's a cellist, does these things called Songs of Comfort. And so I do, it's like hashtag Music Mondays, hashtag Songs of Comfort for these two worlds of mine to kind of meet. Mm -hmm. And for me, music is, it's almost like my first language, right? Uh, I love music to, to be that tool to convey messages without using words, to convey right. meaning, to convey emotions without using words. Right. And I have this routine of playing music on, on, on Sundays and I'll record the song on Sunday and I'll post it on Monday just to provide like some type of uh, normalization and routine for me, knowing that I love playing music and I have this thing called a loop pedal, which allows me to, to play a, a line and then it records, it plays it back and I play on top of it, I play on top of it. And it almost simulates like I'm playing with a band, like I'm connecting with others. Uh, but being able to kind of just jam on my porch and bring music to other people to just kind of be a, a light for their day is really, really fun. Um, my neighbors have not complained yet. Actually, just this week, they were thankful for the music. Nice. And having that routine causes me to think throughout the week, well, what am I going to share you know, this Monday? Mm -hmm. And it's just nice to have that foundational habit uh, to help me kind of you know, pass the time as we are navigating this current pandemic. 
Well, I wish I was one of your neighbors. I would love to be able to sit on the porch and hear that on a Sunday. It sounds amazing. And we will definitely find a clip and add it to the recording. For those that are just joining, um, we will be, this has been recorded, so we will be uploading this and sending a link so that Will can share it with his community because um, I do think it's important that other folks get to hear and see what we talked about. Um, this is the last question as we close out. Um, I do want to make mention that you are taking donations at juraproject.org. So um, we will definitely um, make sure that we include that in the description and in the podcast. So this will end up being part of. And first thing you're going to do quarantine is lifted, stay at home order is lifted. What's the first thing you're doing when this is over? Uh, I might try to go visit my family in, in Texas. Okay. I definitely miss my parents, miss my sisters, miss my nieces and nephew. And being able to physically embrace them is something that I would love to be able to do. All right. So. And speaking of family, shout out to my sister, Mary. Who just I figured back. that's who that was. Hi, Mary. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's my frat brother, Buddha. Oh, his hey, name Buddha. Is Nobody calls him that. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad you all could tune in for a little bit. Um, we are, I'm, this has been a blessing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to share because I think that um, even the timing of this, like I didn't know when, when you signed up for this day that we were going to have this to talk about. So I do appreciate you taking the time out. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to hearing more from you. We'll definitely be sharing some of your videos on our site so folks can get a chance to check you out in your Music Mondays, and also making sure that people have a link to the um, to the donation. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. All right. Love having this that is the end of this episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I am out because this culture ain't going to make itself, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Hey folks, just wanted to take a minute to say thank you so much for listening to Cat's Corner, the podcast. If you would like to follow me on social media, please do so. I'm at K-A-T-S-K-O-R-N-E-R-C-O, Cat's Corner Co. on both IG and Twitter. You can also follow my company, Little Soso Productions, at LSP underscore on the go. That is both at IG and Twitter. And always feel free to come visit us at www.lilsoso.com. L-I-L-S-O-S-O dot com. Thanks again for listening. Really appreciate it.